I know that we can't be quite sure what Ezekiel looked like, and this, you know, wasn't a, a photograph taken of the guy or anything like that, but it helps me just to have a, at least some image there. And I suspect when I saw this, uh, this portrayal, this painting of the man, I thought, yeah, I suspect he might have looked just something like that. The passage that Brian read for us, uh, you, you'll, you'll agree it's, it's not by any means a simple passage, and I, I, I struggle in an endeavor to understand it, and there's many aspects of it, of course, that I don't understand, but let's just set it in context, please. Tel Aviv, where Ezekiel was living when he received uh, this particular vision that we're turning to this morning, it appears that... Uh, it was a refugee settlement that was near the, a large irrigation canal that had been cut out of the Euphrates River uh, and into the country that was southeast of Babylon. And the canal was cut out of the river upstream and then fed, fed back into the river downstream. And uh, as, as time went on, it became known as the Kibar River. It was really a man-made unit, but it subsequently just merged into the countryside and became known as the, the Kibar River. And life for Ezekiel had really not worked out as he had hoped it, it would. Here is this man, nevertheless, even though it was not what he had wanted, here he is right in the center of God's will. Now, I just want to pause, but only very briefly on that, because that's such a significant aspect, I think, of many of the stories of Scripture and many of the, 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 the biographies of men and women of God, that we find this, your plans are frustrated. Things are not at all as you had hoped they would be. You're confused. You wonder where God is in the situation all the time. And yet, so often in retrospect, and not even always that, but God is working out his purposes and accomplishing that for which you have been designed and prepared, that which is best for the ultimate fulfillment of God's will in your life. Now, I can't hold out that for everybody because that would be f just fatalism. But what I can say is this, that the Bible does teach that when we hand our life over to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, 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 then, and we're, we're looking to him for him to bring about in our lives that which is for his purposes and for our good, then he networks things together in order to accomplish his will in our lives. He never promised that it would be a soft ride. And certainly when we look at, at this man, we find that life is extremely difficult. And yet, in this refugee settlement southeast of Babylon, he's right where God wants him to be. There's a great mystery here. The will of God is being done in his life. God doesn't always insist on his will. I've got to say that in passing. Again, that would be fatalism. He does not always insist on his will. If God determines to do something, there is nothing that can thwart his will. But the Bible is full of examples where God sets his will aside. Israel wanted a king. God said, but I'm their king. Samuel came back and said, nevertheless, they want to be like the other nations. They want a king. Okay. says, God, let them have a king. His will was clear, but he put it aside on this instance. You find Jesus looking down over Jerusalem and he, he, he weeps. He breaks his heart over the situation. But what does he say? How oft would I have 
but you would not. Here was his will, that they would receive and listen to his messianic claims and his, the kingdom that he'd come to set up, but you would not. And, and, and the, the, we need to remember this. So often I find, even among Christians, this sort of fatalism, oh, it must have been the will of God, just because something happens. Lewis actually uh, summarizes a great truth in this way. In the last analysis, I quote from C.S. Lewis, in the last analysis, there are those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God ultimately says, okay, have it your way. Solemn balancing of truth. But Ezekiel's life was in God's hands. He had been raised the son of a Jewish priest and he was being prepared for priesthood himself. His godly parents had given him the name Ezekiel which really means strengthened in God or God strengthens. Uh, He was born in Jerusalem in the year 622 BC. And by, by the time of Ezekiel's birth, Jeremiah had already been prophesying in the city for some four years and it's clear that Ezekiel had listened carefully to the teachings of Jeremiah because it comes out in his own prophecy. He probably knew Daniel. Those who are scholars in this area, and I'm not, but those who are, have said that the probability is that he, he knew Daniel, but there's no evidence at all that Daniel and Ezekiel ever came together in, in Babylon. Their their whole careers were in entirely different spheres. One is ministering, as you know full well, from a position of very high office of state, and the other is in a refugee settlement. And yet, here, in the will of God, two men in such different positions, and yet both just where God wants them to be. Don't be taken in by externals. God was just with Daniel in the high office of of state as he was with Ezekiel struggling in a refugee settlement. And he starts his story, as Brian read this morning, in his 30th year. There are good grounds to believe in my 30th year that the, the reference there is to the age of the man. He's now 30 years of age. The age at which a trainee priest would just be coming out, as it were, now at an age where he could minister in the, way of, in the way in which he had been prepared, entering into formal service in the temple. And yet just at this stage in his life, he's in a refugee settlement 700 miles from home among embittered exiles who, who were just getting on with the, the struggle to exist. People who couldn't care less about God anymore. People, in fact, who, who, who really regarded themselves as abandoned by the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. After all, put yourself in their position. It seemed to them that the, the gods of Babylon were stronger than the gods of Israel, the God of Israel. That's what it appeared to be like. Why bother? What sort of a God would leave his people eking out a living in a miserable refugee settlement? It seemed as though they were abandoned. Not for Ezekiel, the high office of state, 
but eking out a living here among an embittered people in a refugee settlement southeast of Babylon. This was life in the raw that he was experiencing. 592, the the year of Ezekiel 1 is 592. We'll get there. He he, he was already 11 years in Babylon, but, but Daniel had already been 11 years in Babylon. But Ezekiel didn't come in that first wave of of exile which took place in 603 BC when Nebuchadnezzar deported many, many people. Ezekiel was 19 and he must have wondered, when is my time going to come? When is my... These were awful, unstable days in his youth and childhood back in, in Jerusalem. Very unstable days. This boy had it hard. Born in awful times. The king of Judah at the time, Jehoiakim, was only a puppet under Nebuchadnezzar, but he was a fool and he attempted rebellion against Babylon. And it was not long before the full consequence of his folly took place, and Ezekiel with others was exiled to Babylon in 597 BC. 25 years of age at that stage when he's exiled there. He may have taken some comfort, incidentally, from a prophecy that Jeremiah had recorded where he had the two baskets of figs, you'll remember. And one was good figs and one was rotten figs. And it was the good figs that were taken into Babylon and the rotten figs were those that were left. Maybe that gave him a little bit of comfort. Don't know. Here is this unemployed priest in a settlement by an irrigation canal a refugee in a foreign land, in the year of his life where his career should be taken off, taking off. Where, where is God in all this? And, and as Ezekiel, he, he's very precise about his debts. You'll find this throughout the prophecy and we'll come back here again. But five more years, he's got to live in this miserable condition before he's commissioned to prophetic ministry in 592 B.C. Five years after his exile, five years wondering where God is, five years struggling. And Babylon, and I just threw these couple of slides in where artists and others have endeavored to give some idea of the, the immensity and the, the power of this place. Uh, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon that are now you know, spoken of with you know, profound respect as to what they were able to do in those days. Can we imagine what it was like to be a refugee, a crushed people, stateless, humiliated, seeing all this opulence around them, the power of this nation? Where is God in all of this? The gods of the Chaldeans seem to be delivering so much. But where is the God of Israel, the God of our fathers. Have you, have you ever had similar thoughts? You know, when, when, we, when we look out on the contemporary scene of the world today and we see how well the devil advertises and how successful his particular ploys are, do, do we ever think just a little of the way Daniel thinks? Where is God in all of this? That's the sort of atmosphere by the the Kibar River. 
That's the sort of atmosphere that's there. And it's in this atmosphere of seeming hopelessness, with the, the power, the military strength, and the commercial strength, and the opulence of the nation that has brought them into captivity, it's in this situation that Ezekiel received the dramatic vision that Brian read about this morning. And as we read this, just remember that we, we human beings have developed language in order to describe the experiences and the feelings and the objects of the society around us. And, and every time a new, a, a new dictionary comes out, it, 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 it is new words there like fax and internet and iPod and, you know, the, the various things that are now around, house music, rap, cell phone. They, they, they've all got to be explained as new things are developed. But there is no language that can cope with what Ezekiel saw. Graphic artists and others have tried, and I just picked a few out of Google uh, yesterday in order to put this slide up, but they have tried to somehow formulate some images that would appear to coincide with the description that's given here by Ezekiel. But I want God to help us this morning, not with this sort of image, not with, with these attempts, but just to recognize that what Ezekiel saw there on that incredible morning, five years after he has been in exile, what he saw there were visions of God. How we need that. How we desperately need that again to get a vision of the Lord God Almighty that we're here to worship this morning. That his spirit would come and let us see him again and to realize the power and the majesty and the holiness of the one that we worship. You know, I, I, I don't want to ever get cynical. God forbid. But sometimes, you know, when I look at the state of the Western church and I'm part of it, I'm not standing aside. I'm part of this. But when I look at the state of the, the church and I'm in the church at large and the church that I'm part of, I get depressed. I get depressed. But then when I get a, just a glimpse of the Lord God Almighty, whose church this is, I get excited and I get hope again. For the, that's, that's what we need. How desperately we need to, to see the God who is behind our salvation. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God that we worship. We desperately need that again. My father told me that in the, when he was a child, gospel services were presented in a very different way to the contemporary way. He says the minister that he sat under would present God in all his glory. All his majesty, all his holiness. And then the realization would dawn, I have to relate an answer to this God. And then the gospel was presented. And sometimes we put the cart before the horse. We need to get a vision of God. We need to balance also our familiar image of the man Christ Jesus in all his wonderful approachable grace 
with the awesome majesty and transcendent holiness of Jehovah God. You see, we cannot grasp the grace and the condescension of the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the the staggering humility of the Bethlehem manger scene, the breathtaking nature of what happened on Calvary. We really can't grasp the significance of that until we also rediscover who he is, the God of creation, the Holy One. It is the same Lord Jesus who walked the streets of Palestine, the the one that, that we can approach and call him our brother, our friend. But he's also the one who said before Abraham was, I am. How I need to get this. How I see so much imbalance in our modern presentation of God. He also was the one who said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And is there not the danger that, that we fall into the trap of thinking that God, the Father somehow, is the transcendent God and that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are the imminent, approachable members of the Godhead? Men, women, young people, let's get a glimpse of the greatness of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit unchangeable God, higher above us than the archangel Gabriel is above a worm. And Ezekiel, in that refugee camp by the Kibar River, suddenly got a sight again of that which he had lost. As he sat there with the others in their depression, Suddenly the depression was lifted when he got a sight of a holy God. There is a tragic mismatch, I suggest to you, between the God that we find in the pages of this book and the God that we so often reflect in our way of doing church. And we need to redress that. I am the Lord, I change not. The same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who stopped the sun in its motion, the the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the God that we worship. And oh, how we, we, we need to realize that we need again to see something of what Ezekiel. So it's recorded for us here. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. I, I've never seen this throne or the one who sat upon it in the manner that Ezekiel saw God. I've never had that experience. But you know, when I read this passage and as I prepared for this morning and thought again, Ezekiel's God is our God. He's the God they're worshipping in Ballinahinch, the God we're worshipping here in Windsor this morning. The one upon, who was born of a woman, who died upon that cross, who lived that sinless life, who rose again, who's coming again. He's surrounded by greater glory now. 
if that's possible, because now he's surrounded by the spirits of a vast company who have, who have who've loved him and, and whose sins are forgiven and who now dwell forever. Those who wait with great excitement for the, the day that's going to come, you know, that day when he's going to say, let's go. Let's go and get the others for whom I have died. Have, have we really grasped the greatness of the salvation that our God has wrought in the Lord Jesus. When we come to worship, do we get excited? You know, as, as this whole scene moved towards Tel Aviv, uh, the, the, the center-like fire that, that revealed the four living creatures, enormous and majestic, with wings and four faces, this is beyond my comprehension. Moving back and forth, appearing with wheel chariots and this amazing gyroscopic design full of eyes. Oh, wow. Suddenly the war machines of Babylon look like matchstick toys. I need that. As I look out and see how well the devil advertises when I see young people absolutely uh, twisted into his way of thinking, when I see the job culture and the way in which drugs have become mainstream and so on, I don't want to become cynical. I want to realize that I worship a God who is altogether holy and powerful. And there's a day coming when he's going to say, enough. And by the breath of his nostrils, he's going to deal with the evil one. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. I need to see again Ezekiel's God. I need this image that Ezekiel had. I need to have it again. We need it in Windsor. We need to see an end to a satisfaction with a drip feed. We need to see, be praying that God is going to move in power and lives that belong to Jesus will be one for him. When Jesus entered into the temple, do you remember? And he saw in the way in which commercialism and greed had taken over. Do you remember what the Bible said? It, it, it quotes from the Old Testament that the, the zeal of the Lord, a zeal for your house consumed me. And there's a danger that we who worship the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, he who is infinite, unchangeable, and altogether holy, that we settle for the presentation that is totally inadequate. That we settle for a church life that is mundane, when we should be crying out for that which is representative of such a great God. You know, he left this world, the Lord Jesus did, in a way that could only be described as very quiet and low-key. A few friends on a Galilean hillside. Oh yes, there was an appearance of angels, but only a few saw it. Wasn't something reported in the Press at the time, whatever way news was published abroad. Just a quiet departure. But oh, when I turn to this word, when I consider the, the, the wonderful promise of his return, and I ask you this morning, is that something you're, you're, you're living with a sense of expectation?
Maybe you'll be there with the crowd that comes with him or here to be taken up. I, I, I don't hear much talking about it now, but the unambiguous truth of Scripture is this, that he's going to come in the clouds of glory. I want to get excited about that. Every eye will see him. The trumpet will sound the great shout of the archangel. What a day that's going to be. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be no doubt then about what is true. The truth himself will appear. Great company that no man can number. A mustard seed promise. Fully completed. What a day that's going to be. When the usurper is finally, his reign brought abruptly to an end. And Jesus died, not simply, oh, the the truth of individual salvation is such a wonderful truth, and I'm delighted to be able to proclaim it, that you can, through faith in Christ, individually come into a living relationship with God, and many of you have. But what Jesus did was much bigger than that. He died in order to reverse the fall. To lift the curse. That God's norm of, of harmony and love and justice would be restored universally throughout the cosmos. A new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Oh my. What a God we have. And on that occasion, by the Kibar River, a depressed Prophet of God, a depressed priest in the making, got a glimpse again of the greatness of the Holy One of Israel. That's the object of my presence here this morning, that we might see him and worship him. When I came into the ministry, and I, God couldn't trust me with a church till I was in middle life. I, some of you know I, I, I'm really an engineer that God called into the pastorate, kicking and screaming at the time, but I asked God, give me a mission statement. Give me something that I can cling on to. And that little verse from Isaiah 33 became for me so precious to see the king in all his beauty and a land that stretches afar to to, to minister in such a way that people might see the glory and the greatness of God and develop an eternal perspective because you have been made for eternity, not like the birds of the the air and the, the animals in the field. You've been made for eternity. And we need to get a glimpse of this God, the glory of God and the land that stretches afar. Ezekiel got that. And you find thereafter, and we'll come back to this book, maybe even this evening, you find that thereafter he is transformed as a man because he's seen God. And how desperately we need to see God. Let's bow our heads. And there we're going to sing, Thine be the glory, risen conquering Son. But it's almost ten to, and I apologize. Lord, Take the inadequate, stumbling words of a man and, oh God, by your Holy Spirit, just reveal in our hearts something, something of the wonder of our God. And shake us out of our compromise and our inadequate concern for your glory and and, and our poor 
realization of what Jesus has won and the wonders that are promised in your word. And, oh God, the potential of a great awakening and a great movement of your spirit. Waken us up to these things, we pray. How we need you. We love you, but we pray for grace to love you more and serve you better. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.